Hey guys, this is Ishai Breslauer and welcome to the CRE Shark Eye Show where we discuss commercial real estate. On Mondays, we dive deep into an asset class and on Thursdays, we go into some inspirational stories for the weekend. Can't wait to start. Let's go. Hey guys, before we start, I just want to point out the six best secrets for commercial real estate. It's a free download. Go to the text side and you will find it. It has absolutely great information, completely free, how to become a landlord, how to determine the value of a property, or creative financing for commercial real estate. All of it is completely free. Go download it. Also, I want to point out my CRE crash course. It's a two-week must-have program with a must-have skills for commercial real estate, like investment strategies, the must-have financial terms, how a deal is done, Go take a look at it, go to the text side and click on the link. And now let's continue with our program. Hey guys, how are you? This is Ishai Breslauer, your host of the CRE Shark Eye Show. Hope you guys are doing fantastic. I'm interviewing today an old friend. His name is Adir Levitas, and he is uh, the CEO of Pharaoh, like Pharaoh, guys. And, uh, and um, it's not Egypt. It's something more. It's something more interesting, and you're going to hear all about it. Uh, Adir, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Shine. Pleasure, pleasure. We're going to have a lot to discuss, especially in the world of industrial and retail. And I look forward to this discussion. But tell you know what? Before we even start, if you could tell everybody, give us the two-minute elevator pitch of what you guys do, and uh, you know, so everybody will know what we're going to talk about. Yeah, for sure. That sounds cool. So um, um, we're basically um, an industrial real estate investor across the U.S. Uh, we manage today uh, north of $1 billion worth of uh, uh, industrial last mile warehouses. Uh, we do that through funds, discretionary funds, where most of our investors are um, institutional investors and high net worth individuals. Uh, we are now uh, finishing up the deployment. We're about halfway deploying our second fund, and um, you know it's been it, it's been great. We're 60 people on payroll, give or take, seven offices across the U.S. and uh, Tel Aviv, um, and we're using um, and more and more technology into our day to day to really handle the uh, uh, and, and streamline our deals. Um, and I think we're in a great market for the past few years. Hopefully it will continue. So, you know, that's the gist of it. Beautiful. You know what? But to get to all this amazing story that we're going to discuss and talk about, you got to start somewhere. How did you get into this whole thing? So, you know, uh, it's a good question. I think that um, when I finished my uh, army service in um, uh, the Patriot system in the Israeli uh, Air Force, uh, somewhere in 2011, um, I was just uh, waking one day after the army, and I was I was freaking bored. I mean, I, I thought I was I had 120 soldiers. I did whatever I want for five or six years. I mean, the, as much as you can do whatever you want in the army. But I loved the army, and one day waking up and doing nothing, just going and studying in university, was so boring. And so I was thinking, how can I get some, how, how can this become interesting? And so I started to learn many things about the stock market, about real estate. And uh, around 2010, 2011, uh, the U.S. real estate market was, you know, still 
uh, bleeding from the uh, uh, great financial crisis. And I thought, okay, let, let's buy some assets from foreclosure. I got some money from the army. I'm going to start doing that. And, and I think just out of curiosity, during um, my uh, university studies, uh, at, in, in my actual first year, um, I went ahead and did that. And, and I worked simultaneously in another company um, that did some of that as well. And so I gained some experience, mostly we're working in the Atlanta market. And by August of 2012, I figured, heck, this is not uh, so complicated. I can buy a few assets myself. And why wouldn't I open a company? So we opened Fairpoint uh, in 2012, same, same brand, same company, uh, same EIN. <laughs> and so uh, it all began. Uh, we were uh, four partners in the beginning. And you know, it's, uh, it's, it's been a long, long way from 2012 to today and things have evolved so much. Uh, uh, but you know, I, I can go to a, whatever subject you want in terms of that, but that's how it started, just out of curiosity, opportunity in the United States and making sure that university is not too interesting. You know what, <laughs> that's a crazy story, but you know what, from that to come into this big world that is called real estate, and we're talking about commercial real estate has a lot of asset classes, right? And everybody's talking about, let's go to multifamily, which is, I guess, the most resilient asset class. A lot of people are running to it. Everybody needs a roof over the head. Very, very cool stuff. But you have other asset classes that are exciting. And it's not likely that a guy, uh, and everybody can hear your accent, your accent, you're from Israel. And um, it's unlikely for a guy from Israel who's getting into real estate in the U.S. to go into industrial, into retail, right? Am I correct? Uh, um, yeah. So, so, how do you, so how did you get into that asset class? What gets you to say, that's what I want to do? Because that's uh, the knowledge base for those asset classes is by far higher than yeah. the others. So I was 23 when I started. Uh, post my army service, I really knew nothing. Sometimes, sometimes lack of experience um, can cause uh, stupidity. It can also cause uh, much courage. And sometimes without having that experience, you're trying things that maybe uh, a more seasoned investor wouldn't have tried. And so I, I was always uh, about going against the herd. When everyone was thinking about multifamily, I was thinking, you know, uh, about uh, uh, foreclosed assets in secondary markets. Uh, when they were thinking about foreclosed assets in single family homes in secondary markets, I thought about commercial real estate in secondary markets. And so I think it's something throughout my life that uh, I've always listened uh, to what's happening in mainstream, but never followed. And it's interesting because today we're mainstream. <laughs> and, but that's not because we wanted- We'll talk about that. Yeah, so I'll just, I just tell you that. So when in 2013, after we've done about 100 uh, purchases of uh, assets from for, uh, single family homes from foreclosure in Memphis. So I was thinking, heck, you know, this is, this is not interesting enough. And again, it's how do I bring more value to my business? How do I do something more significant? And so on, on June of 2013, we decided we're gonna buy the first commercial real estate. It wasn't industrial, it was an Abra, auto body shop. It was an auto shop in Horn Lake, Mississippi. <laughs> it's a suburb of Memphis, Tennessee. We bought that asset and we went to the bank, local bank in Memphis and told them, guys, we need a loan. And they said, what? You're 24 years old from Tel Aviv 
and you want to take a loan from us? <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> and we were like, well, you know, we think it's a good idea. It's a good asset. We persuaded them why the asset is good and they should give us 50%. And they said, okay, then sign a recourse. I said, what do you mean sign a recourse? We don't have any assets. <laughs> we're, not a, we're not U.S. citizens. There's nothing to take. So, nothing to take. They, they were like, I'm going to call you to Tel Aviv and you're not going to answer. And what am I going to do? I'm going to fly over to Tel Aviv and look for you at the beach. What am I going to do? So I was like, okay, okay. And, and, and after a few times we met them, it was, it's a great bank, by the way, uh, uh, First Capital Bank. Uh, they just merged in Memphis, Tennessee. And, and, um, and they became our best bank for the years to come. They gave us the first loan. We became their biggest customer. And uh, it, was, it was a great, uh, great story. And uh, they gave us the first loan. And since then, we, just every two months, we've done another deal in Memphis. And we said, we're going to be the experts for commercial real estate in Memphis. We haven't done one industrial. The story was all about being the best in that secondary market for commercial real estate below $5 million per deal and getting everything financed with the local banks, getting in touch with the local brokers, being the best at what you do in that point of time. So that's how we basically got over there. By 2015, we were thinking, so what's Memphis all about? I mean, what does Memphis has to offer? What you, you know, before we go to Memphis and talking about Memphis, yeah a place that I'm very close to also. But before we go into that, um, tell me a little bit about the, that first deal. What type of deal was that? If you could like tell us a little bit about it. Don't have to disclose yeah. what it was, but what, what, what type of deal, meaning the I'm challenges, getting into yeah. it. It was a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> Everything getting started was super hard. Uh, and again, that was the Abra Auto Body deal. It had nine years on the lease, triple net, on Lake Mississippi, just across Highway I-55, interested I-55. And uh, when we, that deal was 1.4 million and we've never raised uh, 1.4 million. And uh, like assets were, single family homes were 90 or 100. And then, and we were just hooking them, hooking them up with investors. And so going from that place to, uh, $1.4 million uh, deal seemed like a lot. And so after First Capital, it gave us uh, uh, 700000 uh, in uh, in loan. We had to get that extra seven hundred, And we didn't know how do you actually get money into that partnership? How do you form a partnership? How do you go to investors? How do you run a partnership? How many management fees do you take? Where do you find investors? Um, and and it's a, it was super hard. We, we knew nothing. And so we said, you know what? We're going to be approaching investors in Israel, but wait, we don't know anyone. So we're going to be approaching uh, um, brokers in Israel because brokers had their number, had their numbers online. So we said, we're going to be calling people that their number is online. <laughs> so we called brokers. <laughs> That's we huge. invited like 30 brokers, Israeli brokers, because we thought they know investors. We invited them into a hotel in the Tel Aviv beach. It was a hotel Tal, Malon Tal in the Elkhorn. And uh, we brought everyone there and we said, guys, we get the best deal in Home Lake, Mississippi. It's an Abra Auto Body with nine years left on the list. It's a killer. It's a nine, it was a nine cap. And, uh, and, and we got about a few investors out of that and we successfully closed that first deal. And it was, the feeling was just amazing. And we started to gain confidence onto the next one. That's an incredible story. Truly is, truly is. And it just shows that sometimes the entrepreneurial spirit goes beyond what you probably know today. And that is the, 
you know, detailed underwriting and knowing your stuff and, you know, what you've learned from that, obviously. But uh, to get into something, sometimes you need more guts than you need more brain. And, uh, that's right. And sometimes that's, too much brain is a problem. Exactly. <laughs> sometimes too much brain is a problem. Exactly. <laughs> Analysis paralysis. Um, tell me something. Uh, fast forward. Fast forward. You guys got into, into industrial. And um, and to and to uh, is am I correct? You guys doing also you, you do also retail or just industrial? So 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 by 2015 we understood we we need to understand better where do we want to focus and what's our. Oh, I, I apologize. I stopped you. You started telling about Memphis before. Yeah. So 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 Memphis was the first market we came in after Atlanta, and and Memphis was much more easygoing. Um, easy to do business market. We found, we found great people in Memphis and really became our home. Uh, you know, today Memphis is one of the only markets I really don't need any GPS to get anywhere. Uh, I need a GPS in Tel Aviv. To, today I live in Hoboken, New Jersey, but uh, I need a GPS around here. Anyway, so um, in 2015, after we've done some commercial real estate in Memphis, in Atlanta and so on, we decided we we're going to do industrial real estate. And, and, and that was our, our segue because we thought Memphis has one big thing to offer, which is being a hub for industrial real estate. It has the FedEx uh, airport. It has the Mississippi River. It has, it has so many things in terms of how it's situated geographically that we, we want to be, if we're already in Memphis, we might as well do industrial. It was really just luck just starting to do industrial. So we did our first deal in uh, uh, first industrial in February 2016, the Outland Business Park in, in Memphis, Tennessee, was a $16 million deal. And again, so hard to pull off this first deal. Like every one of those jumps, co- you know, cost me probably a few years of my, <laughs> in my life and a few, uh, few white hairs. Um, but um, it, 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 we understood that if we want to be a serious player, we have to get an expertise. Our investors in Israel said, Guys, we have someone for office. We have someone for uh, multifamily. Uh, we don't have anyone for, for industrial. Industrial was just not, not interesting. And so we thought, again, we got to go against the herd. We got to do industrial if nobody does it. Let's understand the fundamentals and do industrial. So we started doing industrial in, in Memphis because everything just you know, uh, uh, made sense uh, in terms of uh, supply, demand, fundamentals. It was the cheapest market in the, uh, the, cheapest market in the nation. Um, and so we did our first deal, and then we started understanding the story of industrial. Why is industrial so interesting? What's happening with e-commerce? What is Amazon doing when they want to get a package fast to you? Uh, and so industrial became our main thing, the main theme. And as we were interested into why industrial is going so strong, we decided we, we, we started to understand what is the future of retail? What is the future of suburban office? And what kind of deals we should not do anymore? And by 2018, we made the decision that we're going to dispose all of our portfolio, which is not industrial, and just focus on industrial. Uh, happily or, or, or sadly, we still have uh, a good chunk, of, a, small, a good chunk in terms of dollar amount, but a small chunk relatively to uh, what we've done in office and retail that we still have on our portfolio. But today, 90% of our portfolio is industrial, and going forward, we're um, you know pure play industrial for now. You know something, well, you've mentioned about this whole, you know, revolution, the Amazon revolution, the e-commerce revolution. And this is something that obviously a lot of people who are, uh, you know, um, 
many years in the game and they're looking at it from the outside and they're saying from a bird's eye view and they're looking at the whole thing that happened actually, you know, in the market, they're saying, listen, um, I looked at the market. I looked at what retail was in the 80s and how the malls were built and designed, et cetera, and what type of, of uh, tenant mix you had in retail. And then you're going into the, you know, the new world of e-commerce and all of a sudden everything's starting to change. And then industrial comes in. Um, and I'm assuming, and that's what I want to ask you. I'm assuming that when you got into industrial, you felt, you said you read the map, you saw things are going uh, because the investor the investors pushed you to look into something that they wanted to, because they wanted to diversify. So go learn about industrial. We'll go into industrial with you. I love that story. I love that part. But when you got in, you started seeing the pack behind you. Everybody's going to industrial. How different is it between then you alone in industrial or you and few other people and today where almost everybody is getting into industrial? So uh, fortunately, uh, we had enough time to understand what do we want to do within industrial and gain experience. Uh, in 2018, we opened our first fund that uh, deployed uh, 350 million. Um, and, and then we opened our second fund um, beginning of this year to deploy 1.2 billion. And so uh, we had the time to understand, again, what's unique about what we do we always think, why should we be the ones people are going to invest with and not Blackstone? Or maybe alongside with Blackstone, but how can we make sure that our product is attractive enough for investors? And similarly to how Amazon thinks about customer-centric, that's how we think about investor being in the, in the center. And so when you think about industrial, you got 2.2 trillion of market size. That's your market size, 2.2 trillion. 50% of that are assets below 200,000 square feet. 50%, the other 50% are bulk deals above 200,000 square feet. However, the, the institutional players are playing mostly, 80% of them are playing in the bulk industrial deals, meaning institutional players are mostly acquiring large uh, uh, buildings. And so the last mile, the smaller stuff, of industrial real estate, which is still over a trillion dollars, is being left behind. Even though its fundamentals are amazing, supply in urban areas is scarce. Um, demand is growing strong with e-commerce. And so the and delivery for new stuff is, is barely existence. It's, it's 0.75 of the market uh, in, in annually uh, versus 3.5% of the market for bulk. So when you're thinking about an opportunity, you're thinking there's not enough competition for small industrial. Supply is very scarce. Demand is skyrocketing. This is where I should be because fundamentals are there. So why are institutional investors not playing that game? The answer is it's too small for them. It's too small for Blackstone to have an investment committee for, for a building that's 5 million bucks. Um, and, and, and it's true for the others. So we thought if we can aggregate hundreds of assets in the last mile and bring them into portfolios that would be worth hundreds of millions, then we would actually gain access to those investors that are willing to pay up and allow us to get a portfolio premium. So we were acquiring those assets, um, project after project, showing that the first time 
We, we bought nine buildings, we got a premium. Then we bought 24 buildings, we got a premium. Then we're buying 120 buildings, we're selling them in a premium. And we're showing that size matters in terms of, of aggregating portfolio in industrial real estate. And, and that's where our uniqueness comes to here. You know something? You've mentioned a few very interesting things. And what I want to ask you, I want to shift gears a little bit. I want to ask you, if you could give us a little bit of an idea, what are the key principles of having a successful type of acquisition for industrial? The type of uh, tenant that you need in, or the type of, uh, you know, the type of strategy where you get into that type of uh, deal? So, you know, the way we think about it is um, a good blend of risk and reward. And so um, I want to say that there's no one good type. There's a good mix for your investment thesis. So if your investment thesis is 15% IRR, then you're probably, you cannot buy the big bombers of industrial real estate, just not gonna work. So you have to think, how do I get to that IRR? So you have to uh, take some more risk if it's older building, if it's a little bit less functional buildings, uh, if it's lack of land and stuff like that. So uh, I think that a good investment uh, portfolio for what we do, which is last mile, would be a combination of uh, uh, having assets that are uh, functional for last mile, because if they're not functional, then the risk is too high, uh, that have enough floor area ratio, enough land, so vans, so uh, Amazon 53 footers can be exchanged with vans that would take the product to the customer. Um, and I think that you can be more uh, flexible in terms of clear height, because you don't need to stack up so much in last mile, and it could be more uh, flexible with uh, how the building looks like because those things could be pretty much managed. So you basically need to care about the status of the parking lot, the, uh, the status of the infrastructure of the building foundations, and the status of the roof. Um, and if you can check out those three things and make sure still building is functional with enough land, you got a good building. It's a good building for today's market. Those stuff can go for primary markets. They can go 5 to 10% in annual increases in rent. It is red hot. Uh, so I guess that's the, that's the big thing. Tell me something. Finding the right tenant requires, when it comes to retail, for example, and you know that very well, requires connections with nationals, knowing the moms and pops in the area, et cetera, et cetera, or the tenant mix that is required. When it comes to industrial, it's somewhat similar, but a bit different. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, I think in, in industrial and specifically in the market today, uh, the markets are 96 to 97% occupied, you know, in general. Um, tenants, um, you know, it's, it's, a funny, it's a funny time. Leasing agents are making less money. There's not enough vacancy um, to be leased. So we're finding ourselves basically uh, in, many, in many terms when we want to try to uh, mark to market some of those suites. Uh, going up from if it was a suite that was in, in New Jersey, in central New Jersey, leased for 425 a foot, we're finding ourselves upping it to 708. From 425 to 708, I'm talking more than 50% rent increase. And so the market is so hot, uh, today it's not a problem to reach tenants. The question is, how can you reach uh, accredited tenants? And for that, you really need to be with good connections uh, with the uh, uh, tenant, rep, uh, uh, tenant reps of the Amazons, the XPOs, the, USB, the USPS, UPS, all of those guys. Um, and so I think it's very important 
to be local and understand uh, the local people that are really, uh, uh, you know, pulling the strings. So we have offices just for that in, in Dallas, in Chicago, Atlanta, um, uh, New Jersey, and, 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 and across a few other areas. Now we're opening in Baltimore and in, and in Miami. Uh, and the idea is really to be integrated within the local uh, leasing and brokers community. So we can make sure we always have the right contacts uh, when we want to get a specific tenant into a specific use, because some specific tenants may pay more for a specific location. But in general, market is red hot, very, very easy today relative to a few years ago to lease. Tell me something, your, your strategy today, when the market is so crazy uh, hot uh, in terms of hold period, what's your hold period nowadays? So it depends on the fund strategy. Uh, our first fund hold period was uh, five years uh, plus extension. Um, we find ourselves though not, um, I think there's, um, we care about um, maximizing investors, investors returns. So uh, in our first fund, even though we started on September, 2018, we're looking to dispose, dispose by um, uh, first or second quarter next year, which would be about less than four years. Wow. So if the, if the market is so strong and you can generate great investors return, uh, then uh, we should take advantage of that. We don't, we, don't, we, don't think, we don't take into consideration things like, but I can get another year of management fees. No, if I can build a better track record, those investors are going to come back. 100%. You know, what, you know what? I want to shift gears a little bit towards what you guys have built. You started with four partners. You mentioned that in the beginning. And today you have roughly 60 people on, you know, on payroll. Can you tell us how you build a culture for such a business that has offices in so many locations and, uh, and to run it in terms of the, I guess, the relationship between the people who work for the company uh, and so on, if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. It's, it's one of those things that really occupies me a lot um, on my day-to-day. -day. Uh, it's the most, uh, it's also very interesting for me. Uh, because it's not just um, a local company's company growing culture, you know, in Tel Aviv or New York. <clears throat> it's a, a diver diversified in geographies. You got people from Israel. You got people in our know, R&D department. We can talk about more about technology comes into that if you want later. Um, but uh, how do you, how do you, there, there's someone that's used to in, in Tel Aviv from our R&D department, he used to go to uh, Seychelles Island every uh, Passover from his company. You got another person sitting in, uh, uh, in New Jersey or in Memphis uh, that is a property manager and he knows uh, you know, how things should be done, but it's not the same culture of R&D. And you got people just all across, all over, seniors, juniors, different style, different culture, different languages. And um, I think that one thing um, is, was very helping me uh, help me to put things in context and make sure uh, things are mostly uh, aligned. And uh, that is having everyone around the same mission. When people understood uh, much more how we're changing industrial real estate, how we're utilizing uh, technology, what is our strategy, what is our business plan, uh, sharing everyone, like, like we have a large leadership team of about 20 people out of our 60 that is exposed to company financials on a, on, a, on a quarterly basis, exposed to company strategy. Um, we have a lot of uh, uh, physical meetings if it's we're taking advantage of conferences, like now in the uh, Miami conference, we had our leadership coming down, making sure we spend time together. Our CTO from Tel Aviv just spent two months in the state. So it's a lot of, um, of time, as I call it, for uh, serendipity. 
and having two people talking, um, making sure people have the time to talk, to think, uh, and not just be on Zoom, that is super, super, super important, and making sure that the main things are going through uh, everyone uh, slowly so they can absorb and ask questions. Making your people feel important, allowing them to really contribute and not just say that, making sure you put them together physically in the same time and make sure they're, they're, they're sharing the same values. If it's innovation, if it's being kind, if it's being uh, caring to our investors, if it's not forgetting your mission, if it's staying true to our discipline and acquisitions, I think all of those things and really handing people responsibility, that's very, very, very important. Uh, making sure people take responsibility. I'll give you an example. Like in, in our acquisition, in our investment forum, uh, then once in a while someone would bring up property then that, you know, I would think maybe, you know, it's okay, but not the best property. But the person that's bringing that property, the person that lives, for example, in Dallas and his team is so convinced that this is the right property. And he has the expertise, he has the local knowledge, and I think maybe it's going to be a slower leasing play, and I'm not sure that his thesis is going to work. And, uh, you know, that's what, well, that's what he sees. So uh, I think that in our culture, we, we let people take responsibility, meaning that uh, um, if we think that the deal is, uh, he thinks it's a great deal, and we think it's an okay deal, but the deal is very smaller in the fund, like it's 1% or half a percent or 0.2%, we do the deal, and this person is now in charge of that deal. This is his, as a, like the Netflix kind of thing. This is his chips. He just put, put down some of his chips Baby. in that deal. Exactly. This is his baby. And if this goes well, then he got credit. And if this goes bad, then uh, he lost credit. And take, giving people responsibility and, and allowing them to grow to help the organization succeed. I love that. Um, tell me something. Plans going forward. Where are you going, guys? So um, basically, we want to change the world. <laughs> but but more, more tactically, <laughs> a little bit less strategic. It's a beauty contest. Um, we, yeah. <laughs> we want to um, we wanna, uh, deploy more and more um, in-house developed technology to change how things are done today in the industrial real estate world. Just one example, um, comps. People are using comps to make sure if a deal is good or bad. I think the concept of, of, of comps is, doesn't, isn't relevant anymore. That's it. It's done. Throw it out the door. Uh, having someone locally in Dallas say a comp for this property would be those three, how can he actually compute in his human mind when is Amazon opening new stuff? What are the permits that were pulled lately? Who bought what? What is the change in regulation? So many data sets that are coming into, uh, into a market that are supposed to change the, how we do stuff. It's been changed in the finance world. It's changing slowly in the insurance world. I think in real estate, we're behind in terms of how to deploy technology and AI. And we really want to take on that mission to keep on doing what we're doing and to drive excellent returns for our investors, but to do that utilizing technology and AI. That's what I tell everybody who's listening. The power of prop tech, the power of prop tech is changing the world, is changing the entire industry. And what we call big data, as you just mentioned, uh, it's, it's one of the biggest thing in the world. Exactly, exactly like you said it. The local guy can know a lot of good stuff and a lot of valuable things, but he, he can know so much. 
once the world becomes a global world and every deal becomes a, gl a global deal, especially if you don't know the plans, if you don't know what's in the back of the head of a huge organization that wants to penetrate new markets, um, you lost. You got to know that. You got to be, you know, you got to be, you, you got to know what's next. You got to be aware of what's coming next. And a lot of stuff is being checked and is being uh, exposed by the technology. I want to go back just for the, before we uh, say, say our goodbyes, um, your, the name of your company is Pharaoh Point. And I said in the very beginning, Pharaoh, and uh, Pharaoh of Egypt, let my people go and all that stuff. Uh, <laughs> why did you guys decide to call it Pharaoh Point? Well, it was, again, another uh, accident. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> um, um, one of the uh, founding um, uh, founders uh, in, in Pharaoh Point back in 2012 said that uh, we, we wanted, we all agreed we should have something uh, guiding investors, something that would symbolize we want to guide investors to better returns or to whatever that was back then. And so Lighthouse was what we thought about. And so our logo today is a lighthouse. But Lighthouse is just, you know, another lighthouse, too many lighthouses out there. So, so Ferro is basically a light in Latin. And so uh, uh, so funny, I didn't know that. Point of light. And so uh, that's the lighthouse thing, you know, guiding uh, um, investors into those investments. So that was the idea. So Adir Levitas is the beacon of light in the world of industrial. Thank you so much. <laughs> I can tell you. Uh, how, how do people find you guys? You guys obviously look and see, uh, you know, the, the links above, below. Adir, please tell everybody how they can find you uh, so they can join yeah, so, the party. So, so, yeah, sure. If, if people are interested, and so we accept today accredited investors uh, across the globe and institutions into our funds. Um, our fundraising office is today in, in Hoboken, New Jersey, and uh, in, uh, in, in Tel Aviv. You can look at our website, fairpoint.com. And you know, we'd love to uh, further talk. Uh, Ishai, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been exciting to tell the story. My pleasure. And I wish you much success, and uh, hopefully we'll... Uh... We'll keep in touch and we'll love to hear what's coming next. And you guys, I'll see you in the next show. Take care. Hey guys, thanks for joining me in this CRE Shark Eye Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And go subscribe, download, do whatever you guys need to do. And I'll see you in the next episode. Take care of yourselves.